Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Father, as we stand before your word and hear this question, do we understand? We ask, Lord, that we might be able to answer it in the affirmative, that you might give us understanding. Open our eyes, Lord, and let your word speak to us now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You just have to laugh sometimes when you're reading through scriptures. Uh, I, when I first read this passage, as I was studying it for this sermon, um, I had to laugh out loud a little bit at the disciples. Because imagine a scenario where Jesus turns to you and asks, have you understood all of this? In what world would your answer to that question be a monosyllabic yes? Yes. Matthew doesn't record it quite this way, but but I imagine Jesus pausing after that answer a little bit. I imagine silence. I imagine the look on his face that said something like, is that your final answer? You're going to go with that? Yes, you get it all, you understand? Because oftentimes I look at what God is saying and I'm like, no, I don't get it all. I don't understand. And so the presumption of these guys, it's not just Peter, right? We're always calling out Peter for saying things that other people know better than to say out loud, but it's all of them together confident that they do indeed understand. And you just think like, who were these guys? How much denial were they in? One commentator talking about this actually flags this passage, and he says, they answer with more enthusiasm than accuracy. The reason that he says that is because of what happens later on, because it becomes clear based on the action of the story and what the disciples do that they do not understand things as well as they think they do. I mean, they're sincere. They believe that they understand But as we'll see, when they're tested, they don't act like they understood. They don't behave as people who understood what Jesus was saying. So you have to laugh. Only, I find myself not laughing anymore. As I've thought about their situation and their answer, and I've tried to put myself in their shoes and and told myself, congratulated myself, that I knew better, that I would never say something as embarrassing as what they said. No commentator will ever have to say, well, at that moment, Mark was more enthusiastic than he was accurate. I realize that, that maybe I'm congratulating myself too much. 
There are a couple of things to think about here when you reflect on these men. First of all, they're just fishermen. Right? These are working class guys. They didn't go to seminary. They weren't raised in, in intellectual, scribal families. They weren't philosophically minded or inclined. Like They worked with their hands. And yet here they are following Jesus and doing their best to enter into what must have been really uncomfortable territory for them. They would have grown up listening to the scribes, and now they're with Jesus, and His expectations for them are a little bit higher, maybe a little bit beyond what they might have felt capable of. And yet here they are, doing their best and honestly believing that they're listening that they're getting the message, that it's getting through to them. And to be honest, I admire that. I want to be like that. I want to be someone who's not just smugly following God in an area of his personal strength, but someone who's willing to go outside his comfort zone into a weakness. I want to be the kind of person who follows God with confidence even when other people who know better look at me and say, wow, a lot more enthusiasm than capability in that guy. right? So there's something to admire in their confidence. There's another point, though, to think about. You might want to be like them, but there is one sense in which you're already like them. right? You're already like them in the sense that you, too, overestimate your understanding. right? You, too, suffer from the problem of saying yes, but living no of affirming, yes, I understand. Yes, I will follow you, Lord. But then, as you subsequently are tested, turn out not to have understood as much as you thought you could. Right? You can relate to them even at their most laughable moments. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes we let ourselves off the hook too easily. Right? We tell ourselves, right, we don't understand. Jesus turns and says, did you understand all this? The right answer is no, Lord. Help me understand. Who could understand this all? It's all a great mystery. And in saying those words, we act as if we're not expected to understand. But we are. And this is one of those moments where I want us to sympathize with the disciples, not just in their inadequacy, but in their determination to actually understand and live what Jesus is teaching. They want to know what these parables mean, what these mysteries mean. We need to be like them so that when we're tested, we act as Jesus would have us act and we don't just say what Jesus wants us to say. There's another way to put it, though, in light of our text. We could put it this way. Let's be fishermen who aspire to be scribes trained for the kingdom. Because in our two parables, those are the two images that Jesus gives. On either side of that question, a parable, one about fishermen and one about scribes. And both of those things have something to teach us because there's something that fishermen inherently understand that we need to understand and something that scribes inherently understand and we need to understand that as well. We'll start with the fishermen. Right, what is it that the fishermen understand that everybody needs to learn? Well, a fisherman understands when it's time to gather and when it's time to sort. It's a simple parable, 
that Jesus teaches is the seventh parable that we've encountered in Matthew 13. It's the third in this series that he's telling to his disciples, not to all the people. This is the inner circle that he's speaking to here. And this is actually the only parable in Matthew 13 that includes its interpretation with the parable. We've seen others be interpreted, but usually Jesus tells it and then he interprets it later. But this one, he just gives the parable and the interpretation kind of all wrapped up into one. And the interesting thing is, in this parable about the casting out of nets and then the sorting that happens on the shore, the meaning of the parable isn't new. The meaning of the parable is actually the same as the meaning of the parable of the weeds that we looked at earlier in verses 24 through 30. In fact, if you look at the explanation of the parable of the weeds later on in verse 42, Jesus actually quotes that verbatim here. It's the exact same words where he says in uh, what's verse 50 in our text, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's the same message, but it's a different metaphor. The metaphor is not just different, but it's actually much more personal to the audience, right? Because instead of farming, now he's talking about fishing. And that's an analogy that these guys understand all about. Jesus is saying, basically, I want to teach you something. There's something you need to understand. And actually, you understand it already. Because as a fisherman, this is something you get. And the message is this. There's a time to gather and there's a time to sort. There's a time to gather and there's a time to sort. There's something no Judean fisherman needs explained to him. He knows how this works. If you were a fisherman like them, you would gather and you would sort, but you wouldn't do it at the same time. These were two different jobs, and they happened at two different times in two different places. Out on the water, you threw the nets, and you gathered everything in. You didn't pause, look in the net, and start throwing out what you didn't want. That's not how it worked. You took everything in, you brought it back to the shore, and later, on the shore, you sorted through the catch. You kept the good stuff, and you threw away what you didn't want. There's a time to gather, there's a time to sort. Two different times, two different jobs. Every fisherman knew this. Jesus says, this is how the kingdom works too. If you understand how fishing works, you understand how the kingdom works as well. Right now, Jesus says, it is time to throw the net. Later, it will be time to sort. It's as simple as that. Now, Jesus elsewhere describes this idea of gathering. He uses the metaphor of the harvest. But here, the metaphor is fishing, but it's the same idea, right? The fish are people, and they need to be gathered in, right? Gathering people into the kingdom is what Jesus is talking about here. And his main point, if you think about it, is the separation of the time, the gathering and the sorting. He's basically saying something like, judgment comes later. Judgment comes later. If you ever wonder why Jesus makes a point in his earthly ministry to talk about things like, like, I haven't come here to judge. Like, now is not the time of judgment. This is why, because judgment comes later. It's going to happen, but not now. That's for later. If you think about that simple message, it has some implications that are pretty profound. First of all, it is a warning. Whenever you see a reference to judgment, even if... The point is to say judgment comes later. 
It's still judgment. It's still letting you know that there will be a judgment. Now, the way things are right now in this life, the way all the fish are together in the net, the way the wheat and the weeds are together in the field, it would be easy to assume that this is the way it will always be. And if you were one of those weeds or one of those bad fish, to take comfort in that fact that this is the way it will always be. Everything is fine. There is nothing to worry about. No sense of urgency. Jesus says, no, there will be a time for this sorting to take place. So there is a reminder of judgment here. There will be a sorting, just not yet. Now, there's another implication here that has to do with with the task of gathering. Right? Jesus is reminding us, as he did in the earlier parable of the weed, that the very task of gathering by design will bring in both the good and the bad. There's a thing in theology we call the free offer of the gospel. Uh, we offer what Sinclair Ferguson somewhere calls promiscuous offers of grace. God's promiscuous offer of the gospel, uh, a, a subversive use of that word. The point being, the gospel goes out and calls everyone, everywhere, to repent without distinction. It's not that the message of the gospel goes out to the good people and calls them to turn and repent. But it goes out to the people who look like maybe they're wavering, but, but they could definitely find themselves on the right side of the line. No, everyone, everyone is being called to repent. And when the net is cast, a lot of fish are brought in. Some are repentant, but not all. The net brings in all kinds. If the idea of being in such a mixed bag, or mixed net, if you will, bothers you, if the idea that you are going to be side by side with bad fish or weeds makes you uncomfortable, then you actually need the same assurance that the person who feels no urgency at the judgment needs. In other words, you need to be reminded the judgment is coming. All too often, there's another kind of complacency, like there's the complacency of the unrighteous who doesn't think there's any need to turn from his sin and repent. But there's also a kind of, uh, let's say, uncomfortable complacency of the believer who forgets that the way things are now isn't the way they will be at the end of the age. The judgment is coming, that there's no need to be discouraged or despondent, that in this age, the net is full of bad fish. In this age, the church is full of bad fish. I'm not going to name names. But that's how it is. If you're looking at us, this church, this community, and you're looking for examples in our lives that don't measure up, you will find them. We are not paragons of virtue. Even the best of us, we're not. We're a mixed bag. We've been gathered in. The point, though, is that it won't always be this way, that eventually things will be made right. This is a temporary temporary state, and, and we shouldn't uh, be discouraged by it. We shouldn't be discouraged by the persistence of evil, in other words, by the continuing presence of unrighteousness, even in the church. If you see that hypocrisy, and it makes you want to give up on the whole idea, 
Jesus is saying, no, this is how it works. Because right now we're throwing out nets and we're gathering in the catch. We're going to sort things, but we're going to do that later on the shore. That's going to happen, but not now. Which leads to a third implication here. The task of setting things right isn't yours. It isn't yours. Remember, when we talked about the parable of the the wheat and the weeds, one of the interesting things was the way that harvest metaphor works is that the reapers aren't us. In that case, the harvest is the judgment, right? It's not just the, the gathering, and the reapers are angels. Here, the angels are doing the same thing, but they're doing it on the shore as they sort the catch, right? It's interesting. It's not the fishermen who go and do the sorting the way they would have done in actual life, but it's the angels who do it. It's their work, not yours. And it's not for today. It's for the end of the age. If you are sorting instead of gathering, then you're confused about what time it is. And you're confused about who you are. A lot of us do this. right? In the life of the church, this is not at all uncommon. That we stop thinking about the need to cast the net, and we start thinking about what's wrong with conditions in the net. We start thinking it'd be nice if we could clean this net out a little bit because there's some fish in here that I cannot abide. And constantly we find ourselves tempted to stop worrying about that and to start focusing on getting the contents of the net just so. There's people at church that shouldn't be here. Or if they're going to stay, they need to change. And we start focusing on that. Like we can't control the world, but we could at least have the perfect little church, right? If we just focused on that, if we didn't just let things slide? If you're sorting instead of gathering, it's probably out of anxiety. Fear is what often motivates that shift. You're worried that that sorting isn't going to happen, that no one's going to do it, that it's up to you to do it, that no one is going to separate the evil from the righteous, the wheat from the weeds. And so you've got to take matters into your own hands. If you're sorting instead of gathering, well, Jesus here is giving you some reassurance. saying You you don't need to do that. That's not your job. The sorting is going to happen, and it's in better hands than yours. Justice will be done. Nothing is going to slide. Don't worry about that. But it's not your job. It's mine. You've got to trust me to do that. If you're sorting instead of gathering, Jesus gives you not just reassurance, he also gives you encouragement in a way, a little indirectly, but Jesus is nudging you as you attempt to sort things out in the net and saying, you know what? Why don't you just focus on casting the net? Why don't you just get back to gathering? Why don't you just return to the mission that I called you to and start throwing out those nets? And then he says, do you understand all of this? Do you understand all of this? And I hope your answer is yes. If you've been busying yourself with something other than the work that God has given you, then Jesus is saying, I want you to get back to that work. Do you understand? The right answer is yes. There's nothing to laugh at in that. We need to get back to the work that we've been called to do. We need to start casting those nets. 
Yes, we understand. We understand, they say. And then Jesus tests it. He goes a little farther. He gives them another parable. This one is interesting because it's a little bit cryptic. He starts talking about scribes and masters of the house and things get a little bit abstract. Like for a fisherman, what we've just covered would bring some clarity, right? Because a fisherman understands how fishing works. And if you're just saying, hey, focus on fishing, just throw out nets, I get that. That's concrete. I don't need to focus on sorting out the righteous and the unrighteous. I just need to drag in the nets. But then you start thinking about what that gathering is. And that gathering is not literal fishing. The gathering that Jesus is talking about isn't done with an actual net. It's a metaphor. right? People aren't fish. They can't be gathered with nets. Something else is going on. The net that you throw is not a literal net. It's a proclamation. It's a message. It's a word. And that kind of net is not easy for a fisherman to throw. Gathering people seems to demand the skills of someone else the skills of a scribe. Now, Jesus, of course, teaches with greater authority than a scribe, so it would be easy for Jesus at this point to say, you know what, guys? I got this one. You're fishermen. You're maybe not up to the task. Let me handle this. But that is not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus is going to train these fishermen to be scribes. Not just any scribes, though. He describes them as scribes trained for the kingdom. A scribe trained for the kingdom. Now, what makes a scribe trained for the kingdom? Well, he gives us an analogy, the analogy of the master of the house. When you hear that word master of the house, uh, the master of the house basically understands a distinction that every scribe would in the same way that, that a fisherman understands a distinction that every fisherman would, the question is, what is that distinction that a kingdom scribe must understand? What is it? How do we put it into words? Well, this is how Jesus puts it. He says a kingdom scribe brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So as you ask yourself what this means, you have to think about, well, what is the treasure and what is the new and what is the old? So master of a house what we might call a butler or a steward, let's say, a person with responsibility for a household. And in order to run that household, he needs supplies. He needs a stockpile. He needs a hoard of things to meet whatever needs might come along. Right. So if he's smart, he's setting things aside as he goes. He's got a storeroom, for example, a treasure house. He's got a basement where he keeps things that may prove useful. He's a good steward, right? He's not hoarding for the sake of hoarding. He's keeping what is needful, what matters, right? That's the idea. So you might think of uh, a wine cellar. You might think of, say, a basement, a well-organized basement. Not like most of our basements, but the basement you dream of having one day where everything is in its place and everything you need is always there and ready. Your, your treasure, so to speak. The things that you've stored up with the intention of bringing them out when they're needed. So Jesus compares the scribe who's trained for the kingdom to this kind of householder. Someone who can bring out supplies when they're needed, whether they're old or whether they're new. 
Right? There are some treasures that have been down there for a long time. They've been down there for years, and there are other things that have just been added. They're, they're brand new. And the master of the house is adept at knowing what's needed and then bringing it out in its proper time. He knows what God has done in the past. And he knows what God is doing now. And he sees the connection between those things. He sees the value in storing them up as treasure. And that means he doesn't just store things down in his basement and then forget about them, right? He knows where they are. He meditates on them. He tends to them. He's ready to retrieve them and make use of them when they're needed. So he knows the past. He doesn't live in the past. He's just as ready to bring out new treasures as he is to bring out old. So he's a person who has a sense of value that stretches over time because he doesn't value old things because they're old. He doesn't value new things because they're new. He values what is valuable because it is valuable. That's his treasure. But what is the treasure? Like, what is the thing that Jesus is talking about? What's the difference between the old and the new? Well, the treasure that Jesus is referring to is God's revelation of himself in Scripture. That God has revealed himself over the course of history over time. He's given old revelation, but in this day that the disciples are living in, he's also giving new as well. And the scribe trained for the kingdom understands the value of both and how they go together. So the treasure is God's revelation of himself in Scripture, particularly of his covenant relationship with his people. So the kingdom scribe is a student of God's word who treasures the old covenant and treasures the new as well. The kingdom scribe studies the connection between them. He sees the continuity in God's faithful work over time, how the pieces fit together. And the kingdom scribe brings up this treasure to proclaim the kingdom. He uses it when it's needed to cast the net, to share the message, to make the argument, to explain the call to the kingdom. That's what he does. Like Matthew has done throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's always ready to take something old, some prophecy, and to link it to something new, some action of Jesus, and show how it goes together, that it's all treasure, because it reveals God's plan to us. He doesn't just cherish the old and reject whatever is new. He doesn't say, no, 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 I like the Old Testament. I like the prophets of old. Don't give me any of this new Jesus stuff. He also doesn't do the reverse. He doesn't go around saying, hey, just give me the New Testament. I don't care about that Old Testament stuff. He sees that it all goes together. He values it all because all of it is valuable, because all of it testifies to Christ. If you think about it, both parables have a unifying theme that has to do with time specifically knowing the time. And this is significant for us. The fisherman knows the difference between the time of gathering and the time of judgment. But the master of the house knows the connection between the time of the past and the time of the present. So you might think a scribe trained for the kingdom has to be part fisherman and part steward. But has to understand the difference between what we're doing now and what God will do in the future. 
but also has to understand the importance of all that God has done over time and be able to cherish all of it. To understand the already and the not yet of the kingdom, but also understand the unity of God's covenant work throughout the ages. And Jesus wants you to understand these things and wants you to live these things and to act and speak as if you understand them. This knowledge is knowledge for us as well. Now, throughout this series, we've been studying the secrets of the kingdom, but maybe the greatest secret of the kingdom is one that Jesus keeps trying to reveal over and over again, and people refuse to see it. It's that the kingdom is not of this world. That Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That it's not a restoration of the old political kingdom. That it's something else, something spiritual. In other words, it's not just that the kingdom doesn't work the way we think it should work. It's that the kingdom isn't what we thought the kingdom would be. It's not what we were hoping for. But it is what we need. We are not waiting on the kingdom to come. The kingdom is here. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're not asking God to start or establish his kingdom. We're praying, keep it coming. Keep it coming. Keep doing what you've begun until it comes in fullness. Until the world is more and more what it was made to be. But Jesus is king right now. And his kingdom is here. It is not yet what it will be, but it is already established. It is spiritual, not physical. It is redemptive, not political. It's the new covenant promise coming into the world little by little. It's Christ making new creatures of us in anticipation of the new creation that is to come. You might say today the kingdom is the church. But when Christ returns, the kingdom will be the world. Yet, as exalted as the kingship of Jesus is, Jesus knows how to do the work that he's called his people to do. Like Jesus isn't telling you to do things that Jesus hasn't done. Jesus knows how to cast a net. Jesus knows how to keep a house, too. In Luke 5, Jesus tells the fishermen to cast their nets, but Simon Peter knows better. He says, Master, we toiled all night, we took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. You want it, Jesus? You got it. And those nets are so full that they start breaking. And so they call reinforcements. And as the other boats arrive and they start pulling the nets in, the nets are so full that the reinforcements begin to sink. When they finally get to shore, Peter doesn't say, great, let's start sorting. Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He knew that he had witnessed a miracle. He knew that it was a sign But he knew that the sign testified to something. It testified to the presence of the kingdom. It testified to the kingdom being here. Luke says, So when they had brought their boats to land, they didn't sort the catch. They left everything and followed him. Jesus knew how to cast a net. John 2 at the wedding at Cana, Jesus doesn't just bring treasure up from the storehouse. He speaks treasure into existence by turning water into wine. The master of the house 
a parallel to uh, the master that we see here, the master of the feast in John 2 and the master of the house here, is so astonished by the quality of the wine. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then John writes this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. They saw what he did. They understood that it was a sign that the kingdom was here. And they believed in him. Jesus is king. But Jesus is king of the breaking nets and the sinking ships. Jesus is the king of the water turned to wine. Jesus is the king of the best saved for last. You don't need another king. You certainly don't need to be king yourself. Just be a scribe trained for the kingdom. Just get your net out there, gather, store your treasures, bring them up when the time is right. Know the word, declare the word, trust in the word. Do you understand? Do you understand? If you do, then praise God for that understanding and live by it. But if you don't, then pray that he would open your eyes so that you might see. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.